0: From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coons.
1: Thank you, Jesse. Hi, everyone. It is Connie Coons, and you are listening to the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. It is still season one. It's episode 27. The month is June, and the author is Ms. Molly McNett. Hi, Molly. Hi, Connie. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. You're welcome. Ms. McNett is going to read her short story, The Black Knights of the Moon. And it is exquisite. Thank you. You're welcome. Is there anything you want to tell your listeners before we begin?
2: I think they'll figure it out as we go along. Okay,
1: perfect. Then let's listen.
2: The Black Knights of the Moon. Solomon was born in the year 1830 or 1831. Even his mother didn't know the day exactly. They were slaves in Macon County, Kentucky, right across the river from Ohio. When Solomon was just a small child, his father and four other men had rowed across the river to freedom. Solomon remembered that one night shortly after his father left, the preacher, who could read, came to their cabin with a paper from Ohio with a hue and cry in it. That was an announcement for the whites to shoot the five escaped ones if they saw them and get paid for it too. On hearing this, Solomon's mother dropped to her knees and cried, pulling at her hair. That picture stayed with Solomon. Not of his mother, exactly, but the ball of snarled black hair on the whitewashed floor of the cabin, standing upright like a small, wild creature. Look after her, the preacher told Solomon. He tried to. He drew her some water, and when she wouldn't get up, he boiled up some mush and fed his smaller brothers. But it didn't help, because the next they saw his father, it was hanging from the white oak tree in front of their cabin with three of the others. One had gotten away. So Solomon never dared to hope for a different life. When he prayed at night, he asked only what the preacher had taught him. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. When Solomon was 12 or 13, Old Mars, their master, died. His son, Lil Mars, became their new master. They did not call him Lil Mars to his face, though he might not have minded. Lil Mars was not little at all. He was a 30-year-old man, but he looked 50. His body was stooped and fat, so that his braces, rather than holding up his trousers, made dented stripes in the belly that oozed out between them. He had watery eyes in his white face, which was soft and sad and droopy. He seemed to be their new master in spite of himself. Solomon heard the others say they did not know what to think of little Mars, But Lil' Mars was the spawn of Ol' Mars, so he must be evil too, in spite of anything the Bible said about forgiveness. So Solomon hated him. But Solomon's mother worked at the big house one week when the cook got sick. She came home and said, Lil' Mars liked to set us free. He tell you? I just know. But he too weak. There were other plantations on all sides of them. You could picture a master, bold enough, sure enough in himself to incur the wrath of his neighbors, said Solomon's mother, but Lil' Mars was not the one you'd picture. Solomon grew tall. He must have been fourteen or fifteen. In the month of April, he was walking past the big house with a wheelbarrow full of wood for the cooper. Lil' Mars called to him from the porch. Solomon, you'll be wanting to go courting soon. "'Yes, sir, I suppose I will,' he said. "'Solomon, is there a girl here you find nice?' "'No, sir,' he said. "'Well,' said little Mars, "'you think about it, and if you don't find one, "'come the lay-by for the cotton, "'you can go to Singleton's.' "'Singleton's, sir, or whichever place you want, "'till you find someone.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Would you like that, Solomon?' "'I don't know, master.' You don't know? I never thought about it, sir. Courting. Lil' Mars sighed. He rested his elbows on the porch railing and looked down at Solomon. His eyes had a vague, womanly look that made Solomon embarrassed for him. It isn't something you think about, Solomon, said Lil' Mars. It's a feeling you get. You see someone and you feel something for her and then you follow that see and when you feel it you'll just know i will master yes solomon in august then yes sir thank you Lil- thank you mars sir then he saw what his mother meant Lil' Mars hardly seemed evil. He was a reluctant master. He seemed shy of Solomon even. Soon after this talk with Lil' Mars, love began to occur to Solomon. At night he prayed two things. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. And if it be acceptable, let me find someone to love. And not long after his mind had taken up the suggestion, the world seemed to conspire. It was blossom time. As he worked, the scent of magnolia would come up his nostrils. He stopped. He fixed his attention on that smell. Or walking home, after the work of the day was done, he looked down to see his bare torn feet on a soft white carpet of dogwood petals. He bent to feel one. Between his thumb and forefinger, it was like soft skin. Along the path to the cabins, where only weeds normally grew, flowers the color of a pink-orange sunset had sprouted. As he passed, they bent their heads to him in the breeze. They sang a little song. This is your story, Solomon, the story of your life. We are part of it and your father, your mother, and your brothers, but you are the center. It's your story. You. It was a cheerful song, and Solomon felt warm and wonderful. This made him wonder later, if love came to you, even before you met the person, if it was in you somehow as a seed, waiting for the other to water it. The spring turned to summer. The sunset flowers withered. The hot months of their hard labor passed, and then it was August, the time of lay-by for the cotton. An auntie on the Singleton plantation sent a message with the blacksmith who'd come up to shoe Lil' marse's horse. She had a girl for Solomon to meet. Solomon cleaned up. "'borrowed his father's meeting shirt "'that his mother kept in a box beside her pallet "'and took the path that went through some chinaberry trees "'and along the river, "'listening to the sound of the water he could not see. "'Later, when he remembered it, "'and after, he lay awake, "'tracing it over, remembering it, "'there was some kind of song in his heart "'that went along with the cheerful sound of the current.' He couldn't see the water for the trees, but he was walking downstream. He thought of that dark water drawing him along without seeing it, and though he didn't often think in this way, it occurred to him in the happy moment that both he and the water were pulled along, that current as all the forces of the earth pulls us toward our destiny. He got to the Singleton place and asked for the auntie, who brought the girl. At first, he didn't really look at her. They sat on the auntie's pine bench together, the auntie beside them, so they had to sit close together, closer than he would have dared hope for. Her name was Rebecca. She was quiet, much darker than bright, Solomon. She wore her hair tucked under a sunbonnet like a white woman. Then she looked right at him from under that bonnet brim, with big eyes shining white in her tiny, dark face, and it came upon him as fast as little Mars had described it, a tugging in his heart, coming straight from this look that she fixed upon him. He asked her, "'What do you do?' "'Days I milk and churn and clean the big house. Night's I card and spin.' Yes, it was her face, her small, delicate body that stirred him, and also the sound of her high, soft voice as she answered him shyly. But it must have been more, and something else. They didn't exchange more than twenty-three sentences, he counted later, speaking each one again aloud, lying on his pallet. And he didn't sleep that night for the glee of it, Days I milk and churn and clean the big house. Nights I card and spin. He went twice more. The first time, Auntie brought them some meal coffee, and they sipped it and talked a little more. The second, he helped her gather some rotten pears that had fallen to the ground and put them in a basket, and twice their hands touched as they put them in. And when they went to throw these pears to the hogs, They were covered with ants, and he brushed them away for her. She pulled her hand back, but smiled, and thanked him in the quiet, high voice. It don't sting me none. When they had finished and sat on the little rise beside the river, the sky turned the same pink and orange of the flowers on the cabin path. It was the time that the auntie usually told him to go, and yet... She had not yet come to feed the hogs and was nowhere to be seen. They sat. The sun lowered suddenly, and they were under cover of night beside the great dark river. What a thrill it was to speak to her in darkness, how his heart leapt and sang, and he thought back to the hope of such feeling which was all he'd had formerly, and the current experience of it, And he couldn't quite believe he was here with her, Rebecca, Rebecca. It was almost too much, so that he felt the whole thing was very like pain. A pain of anticipation, a joyful pain of being with her, a pain of having to leave, which made him fear somehow losing the joyful feeling. And it was all so terrible that he had nothing to lose by speaking. What you thinking? Right now? Yes, now. She pointed across the river. Over there, she said. They free. He didn't think too much of her words then, because his own words were not what he felt. When he asked her, What do you do? he was saying, I'm pleased with you. And when he asked her, What are you thinking? He was really asking, do you love me? So when she answered him, didn't she too mean something else? Come back to me soon, I love you. The more that he let himself hope for it, the worse it seemed that it might not be so. Then for two days he could not go to her. The overseer made them split rails, and by evening Solomon's body was worn and tired, his hands splintered. From his father's box, he took the corncob pipe and a pinch of tobacco that his mother always kept there, and he thought he might share it with Rebecca and put it in his pocket. He went to Lil Mars and said, please, master, may I go? Mars only smiled. I'm glad you found one, Solomon, he said. Yes, sir, Solomon said, fingering the pipe in his pocket bending the toes of his right foot up and then the left because it was a torture to stand and wait for the answer. A few good days will make her more eager, Solomon. It's better this way. She'll love you more for it. Solomon threw the pipe down on the porch. It skittered across the edge and off the edge into the grass. A cat yelled. How you know, Lil Mars, he yelled. To speak to a master that way, it was unheard of. Solomon's face was hot, and he wanted to hide himself. But little Mars only nodded. I was young too, Solomon, he said sadly. That's all. Can I send her a message? You can, Solomon, but sometimes a woman likes to be kept waiting. Oh Lord," Solomon said, pressing the heels of his palms into his forehead and rocking that way forward and back. "She do," Solomon could hardly believe that. He would not like to be kept waiting, but Lilmars had been right before about the feeling, so Solomon trusted him, and waited. <laughs> that night, turning on his pallet, Solomon worried. Could he remember her voice, still, and her face? When they touched in the pear basket, when he brushed the ants from her skin, he had not had cause to examine her hands. If they were as soft and fine as petals, he loved them. And if they were coarse or rough, even better, if they were square, he loved them just as well. He tried then almost eagerly, to think of anything another boy would not like in her so that he might love it. She did not wear shoes. Surely her feet were coarse and rough, though they were covered by some kind of homemade moccasin made of cloth, a rag from a worn garment. He thought they were beautiful. Even with that bonnet, she was very dark, he thought, and he was pleased, because some other boy might want a brighter girl but the darkness was perfect for him. Rebecca Two long days passed. Solomon split the rails for little Mars, and his back and ribs were sore and angry from impatience and waiting. The blacksmith came from the Livingstons again and brought with him a note. It was handed him, Solomon, who could not read, and he burned with impatience and shame. He brought it to Little Mars. Why, Solomon, said Little Mars, I do believe your scheme has worked. Then he paused. He was a slow man, and it was common for him to pause in speaking. And they sometimes made fun of him when he'd call them in. Solomon, would you go on out to the uh, sugar house and get... and get while whatever it was you would have to do soon seemed worse than this standing around waiting for him to find his words. And so it was now. He stammered as he studied the note paper. Well, it says here, it seems, she says, she asks rather. I mean, she, oh, please, sir, yelled Solomon. And Lil Mars really laughed. A good laugh. Then he took pity. Miss Rebecca requests that young Mr. Solomon pay her a visit tomorrow, for she has a favor to ask of him. He grabbed the paper and looked at those incomprehensible marks as if they could help him to understand what she would ask. Would she ask him to marry her? But a woman couldn't ask a man, could she? Although, if it were that, Of course, he would ask her himself, if she wanted him to. He would make her a promise. Would Lil' Mars trade her for another, so she could come to live here? And he thought of these things the next day as he swung his axe, and as he cleaned the wood dust from his clothes and the mud from his boots and the dirt from under his fingernails. They sat again on the bench, under the chinaberry tree, in the awkward silence, which was now so full of possibility. It was not yet dark. The auntie was next to Rebecca, looking away, and Rebecca was next to Solomon. It was hard to breathe. She said, "'I want to ask you—' "'Yes?' "'Would you row me across the river?' Across a river? His heart seized. He thought, no, and yes, of course, in the same breath. He'd said, all right, as if she'd asked for something easily given or something he'd expected. The auntie sat forward on the bench and craned her neck at him. Row you there for something caught in his throat for good? "'She has someone to meet her on the other side,' said the auntie. "'She'll be taken care of there.' "'She explained what Solomon had to do. "'Auntie would show him where the skiff was tied. "'They could go down past Singleton's,' she said. "'The river's narrow there, just two miles across, ain't it?' "'And Solomon nodded, though he didn't know where the river was narrow and where it was wide.' or how long it would take to row two miles. But he nodded, as if he knew. And when you get near, look for a lighthouse. Row to the light. Someone would say these words, Is not this the fast that I choose? And Solomon should answer, To loose the bonds of wickedness. And that would mean he had the right person, and then they'd pull him into the shore. Be careful coming back, Auntie said in case anyone's caught her missing, and tie up the skiff, and you'll be done. Solomon looked down toward his hands. His heart beat hard in his chest. He felt that he did not exist. He was swallowed up by disappointment and shame. If she loved me, why would she go? But he could feel Rebecca's eyes on him. She was smiling. Then a second thing happened that Lil' Mars hadn't prepared Solomon for. He knew quite suddenly what it was to love someone, what the flowers were singing about. Solomon was the actor in the story because there was a goodness in him that came before Rebecca, some kind of goodness that was not his own, really, but his to use somehow. And he took Rebecca to freedom that very night, after the sun went down. The moon never did come up and they sat in the skiff in darkness with only the sound of the water and the oar dipping and pulling. They didn't speak. Maybe there was nothing left to say. He found the light and got near and said what he should say and she was gone. He rode back safely. the word got out about Solomon. People lined up. They waited for what they called the black nights of the moon. In the dark, Solomon went to the meeting place. In the dark, he rode them over. He didn't hear their stories. He didn't see their faces in the black night. Years later, when people told Solomon's story, they said, well, Wasn't that also the way of the Lord and Savior? For there were people and more people, and he saved them, and soon all would be strangers to him. Yet he loved them. He set them free. Lil Mars must have known what Solomon was doing on those black nights. His own slaves disappeared one by one, including Solomon's own mother, and those who were left, sensing their time too was near, grew happy, but little Mars was happier too. His step grew lighter, and he never asked Solomon any questions. It took about five years for them to catch up to Solomon. One dark night, when he tied up his boat after rowing back home, they came after him, and he never went back to little Mars. He slept in the woods and in the branches of trees, but he knew he could help no more. He waited for the very next black night of the moon to come so that he could take the skiff and row over and be free. And so he did. And he was.
1: That was fantastic. Thank you. That story feels familiar, but it's brand new. It's it's very insightful. It's very fresh. But I feel the story. I feel like I know this story. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you wrote this, how you came to write this. Uh, what was your research going into it?
2: Well, I for a while, I've been working on a project that involves um, slave narratives. So I read um, actual slave narratives. And um, well, right now, I'm working with um, documents from the Federal Writers Project, you know, the um, WPA, the Federal Writers Project. Mm -hmm. Um, They um, commissioned people to interview uh, former slaves and um, write about their lives, and so those are, they're more like interviews than narratives, but then I also have collections of narratives, the New York Times published series series of them, and then, um, you know, some more famous ones, Frederick Douglass and, mm-hmm. and those, other the Harriet Jacobs, which is fictionalized, but it's also, you know, based on true events and and um, those kinds of things as mm-hmm. well as more obscure ones. So this came from a real narrative, but it's fictionalized. So what that means is that the skeleton of it uh, is true. There was a, a man, I don't know if he was a boy or a man, um who did row people across the river. And so I, I basically, I, I, I love that idea because why wouldn't he just, once he got there to the other side, why wouldn't he just clamber up the bank, mm-hmm. you know? Um, that was really intriguing to me. So I, I wanted to try to sort of think about who this person would be and how he would come to want to do such a selfless act. You know? Can
1: you tell us what it's like to go into the mind of a 12 or 13-year-old boy?
2: Mm. it's no different for me than (laughs) anything else. I mean, I guess you might say, oh, it's easier. You know, once you get older, it's easier to do a a range of characters. You can remember being young and then older. Of course, um, that circumstance, those the boys' circumstances, life circumstances are totally unfamiliar to me, you know? Um, But I think, you know, writing is a great, Act of empathy, really. Not that you, you know. I don't. I don't mean to be. Um, I don't want to claim more for it than what it does. But I think that it forces you to imagine yourself into the life of someone else. You can't really do it well unless you do that. And so that takes empathy. And it doesn't matter what kind of character. This happens to be a sympathetic character, but it doesn't matter what kind it is. You have to try to imagine what the that person is feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. but It does. Yeah. It does.
1: Uh, he doesn't know if he's 12 or 13. He doesn't know his birthday. His mm-hmm. mother doesn't know his birthday. Right. You mentioned Frederick Douglass a moment ago, and I know that that was his case as well. He oh, with
2: his... so many of these it is. Mm-hmm. So many of the slave narratives, um, The the people are really unsure about when they were born because, mm-hmm. you know, they were just numbers. They weren't really, you know, they were uh they were property and so that they the what was recorded um you know bills of sale and things like that (laughs) though there were certain details recorded but the exact date of their birth wasn't really that important to them and how would their um, mother for example have known what particular day it was you know
1: i love that you included that detail and it Mm -hmm. makes me want to ask you about your own birthday culture if i may Mm -hmm. when's your birthday August nineteenth. Do you love your birthday?
2: Oh no, uh, <laughs> no, I don't. Here's why, <laughs> because I uh, it's always disappointing to me. Okay. So I try to I try to really lower my expectations and do nothing at all special. Just kind of do the day, maybe you know, a dinner or something. But um, the more hoopla I try to make about it, the more. Uh, disappointed I am so I enjoy my <laughs> husband's birthday is three days before mine and I like his birthday because my job on his birthday is to make him happy mm-hmm. and so that's achievable you I know I mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I should say that's achievable but, but at least I can try for that you know mm-hmm. yeah. you said
1: your birthday's on August 9th 19th 19th, 19th. Yeah. so you remember mm-hmm. your golden birthday and he would remember his golden birthday as well mm-hmm. do you remember what you did well you should what did you do on your 19th birthday
2: Wow. I, um, yeah, you know, I should remember it, but I don't. I don't know. Oh, I couldn't tell you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if
1: Mr. Libman remembers his <laughs> golden birthday, turning yeah. sixteen.
2: He, pro- oh, he probably does. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, how about birthdays for your own children? Was that a big deal when they were really little? Well, did kinda...
2: sure. It's, that's delightful, isn't it? Uh, when they it's my like favorite. it. When they like it, and you can make a big deal about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah because you had started off with his birthday not being known by him or his mother and being a mommy it upsets me and i've known that this yeah. is a common i know i knew this happened mm-hmm. uh and it just it made me stop and think about what i think of my own birthday which i love and my own kids, which I love, my husband's, which I love. I just love birthdays. I think they're the coolest things. And it just is such a sad thing to me that that is not a part of Solomon's life. Mm-hmm. That at age 12 or 13, he doesn't know how old he is, that he is still considered a piece of property, even in his own mind. Mm-hmm. And then that he doesn't row himself immediately to freedom, which you touched on a few minutes ago. And I was wondering if you would talk about that time in your life when you had freedom over there across the river. And you didn't go to it for yourself. Oh. Metaphor time. Yeah,
2: I mean, if I had such a thing, I would maybe have more license to have written a story like this, you know? Mm. That's all imaginary, you know? I mean, I I couldn't pr- pretend to have such an experience because I don't have... So this is what... Uh, we've talked about this (laughs) earlier, I hope you don't mind if I say, but before, you know, before we started recording today, we were talking about what it, you know, what it means to sort of write as a white person the the story of someone who's black, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and then to write as a white person who's, you know, never known anything close to what slavery would be, Mm -hmm. to write about the experience of having been enslaved. It's not, you know, I'm not even sure that I should th- do something like that. The only thing I can say is that I feel like the more that I read these stories, the more that I understand it. It is upsetting to me, but the more that I, um, you know, the more that the experience of it seems to penetrate my understanding, mm-hmm. you know, and that I don't think we can get enough of. Mm-hmm. And so, Um, you know, that's my excuse for it, you know, Uh,
1: excuse. It's not an excuse. I don't think that you need to excuse yourself. I think you should write whatever you want. I think everybody should write whatever they want. And I think this is brave and insightful and important work. And I'm so glad you're sharing it with us. And I, and I did want to ask you, what is it like to be white writing about something that is considered black? How does it, you know, does it challenge you when you're in the middle of the process? Do you think about it before or n- and after? What is your process going into something that is so challenging and different from you?
2: Well, when I read these narratives that are real narratives, original narratives or interviews, um, then I'm just reading with great interest this these people's stories. And I can, you know, like, I, it's so emotional for me. I really do feel... Um, so much empathy with them and with their stories. It's I can't read too many of them because it's hard to read. Actually, um, I feel like you know it makes me want. So the impulse to write sometimes comes from reading something, you know, um, and sometimes it's from reading something that's really well written and that inspires you. But these aren't written things. Mostly they're narratives that or they're interviews. With people, you know, so I'm, I'm really, it's even more direct. It's just their story, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so recently I was reading this story of a guy who, it's just his attempts to escape over and over and over and over again. And so many horrible things happen to him. And yet he still tried to, you know, still over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he tries to go. He gets caught. He gets brought back. He gets beaten. He tries to go again, mm-hmm. you know, over and over. And, it, you know, you just, uh, you just feel like, oh, how long is this going to go on until he gets free? You know, you really mm-hmm. get involved in it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I feel like here's the thing in some way, I feel like as a white person, I don't have the right to write about it, and in some way, I feel like I also don't have the right to ignore it, Um, which is what I was doing when I wasn't writing about it, and I was thinking, still thinking about it. You know, it's like just this, um, well, uh, you know, I heard this metaphor about India, this woman who, a writer who lives in India, um, said that, that being in India is like riding on the back of this big elephant. And you can be up there and you can be comfortable, but you pretend like you're not on the back of this elephant. You don't look down at the elephant. You don't know what the elephant is going through and you're born along through life like that, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, you are actually on the elephant, you know? So, I mean, this horrible thing happened not so long ago, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? So, um, to me it just seems like something you have to look at and then also i think writing other historical pieces made me see the very first one i wrote i thought well i put it away in a drawer and thought well i can't really publish that because you know what do i know about that and then it you know when when i started like thinking about it more or those things got received a little better i thought oh it, it is, you do fail at this a little bit, like you're never going to get it just right, but it's sort of the attempt that um, held my interest, you know, just trying to aim at something that might be a human connection with this person who lived a long time ago, you mm-hmm. know, so.
1: Well, I find your writing has a very healing touch. There is something that we talked about off mic and We don't have to include this in the interview if you don't want to. We'll just simply take it out. And that is, you thought maybe the next story about the wet nurse and the infidelity might not be appropriate. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, Yeah. Okay. I was wondering why you thought it might be too dark of a story. Because I think it's beautifully written. um,
2: (laughs) Because it ends in so much violence. it's, It's... very violent. Am I giving it away? I don't know what order everything's going in, but, you know, I might be spoiling something. The end is violent, because there's a lot of violence Mm -hmm. in the story. The original story, so it's based on a Chekhov story Mm -hmm. called Sleepy, you know? Yes. Um, And in that story, it's also very disturbing and very violent, Mm -hmm. you know? And there's also sort of a, there's a servant in that, in that instance, a servant girl Mm -hmm. who, um, you know, ends up killing a baby because she um hasn't slept for so long Mm -hmm. and that is also a really disturbing and violent story but by the by the end of the story you can see um you're really inside her head and you can see how it happens Mm -hmm. you know the baby is the thing that's preventing her from sleeping so in this story it's much different Mm -hmm. you know um, but the the violence is there and the lack of sleep is there. Anyone who's had a child can relate mm-hmm. <laughs> a small child can relate to those um, months that you spend without having sleep and how you sometimes feel like you're going insane progressively and um, so to that I could relate and I was interested you know in if you if you took that situation and sort of multiplied it what um, someone might do. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I totally understand. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm very excited to record that story. And I was just uh, surprised that you thought maybe it wouldn't be appropriate for the podcast. And I kind of wanted you to talk through that, what was going on in your head when you were thinking whether or not this would be appropriate.
2: Mm-hmm. And you did. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, to me, the image is pretty strong at the end. You know, I mean, it's pretty... S- there's a pretty strong, violent ending, um, and it. But you know, I think also it's not when you're. We're when they were living in a time when their s- slaves were not thought of as human beings. You know, even in the first part of the story, she's just a toy. <laughs> she's not. You know, so she's a toy who's treated really nicely. Then she's a toy who's who's you know, basically murdered, right? Mm-hmm, yes. Because her life doesn't mean anything. So over and over again, and this is a Tanahasi Coates line, and I don't know if you're familiar with his mm-hmm. work, but um, you know, um, he—I can't say it verbatim—but there's the idea of the black body. You know that, like, it—if it, if you're black and especially a black man, young black man, your body's not your own. You know, like you don't—you don't have rights to that. <laughs> Or you feel you don't, you know? And, um, of course, it's it was just literally true then, right? So um, I think, um, you know, I, I guess after reading some of his work, I've been thinking more about that, too. I, I read it after I wrote this story, but it, the more I read these narratives, the more that image comes up again and again, you know? Yes. The, um, the idea of the body itself being... Um, being the property
1: of of another person. I'd say that's a very timely theme. Mm -hmm. And we could delve into that if we wanted to, or we could circle Mm -hmm. back to Solomon. I'd rather circle back to Solomon if that's okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he does row himself to freedom, I know how I feel. How do you feel when that happens for him?
2: Of course I want him to row himself to freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, I want that. I don't even think, you know, I had I read this at a reading. Somebody asked me, well, do they meet up? Does he then meet up with the girl? <laughs> and I thought that was such a, um, it was a funny question. I mean, I, I see why somebody would wonder about that because I did set it up so much as a love story, but it really wouldn't ever enter my mind that mm-hmm. that, that would happen because at that point he's sort of, his love has become a different and sort of greater kind of love. Mm -hmm. His love has expanded, you Mm -hmm. know. Ideally, everybody should, you know, everyone's love um, should expand in that way, you know, like your love for another person should sort of teach you how you might love everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, that's sort of the idea of it, I guess. Uh,
1: Most of this takes place outside. Could you tell us about your own commitment to the outdoors?
2: Oh, well, you know what's interesting is that a lot of these things, I'll tell you a secret, I don't know what they're like. I don't know what dogwood petals are like. I've researched them and seen pictures. I have no idea what they feel or smell like. I don't know what a China berry tree really looks like. I just, you know, like these are, and maybe there's even... um, you know, cliched images of the South, but I just looked up things or took things from the narratives that I wrote that seemed to fit um, with some of that um,
1: flora and fauna, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Today, I know for a fact, you're in a kayak on a pond Uh rowing (laughs) yourself. That's
2: right, I do, yeah. yeah. I'm the fortunate... No, I shouldn't say owner. My parents own it. But there's a little pond on a a property that adjoins ours that's my parents' um, property. And there's a little pond on that property that's a spring-fed pond. It's super cold. You can barely swim in it. But it's a lovely summer spot, Mm -hmm. you know. And so a good place to go and mull things over.
1: And I was wondering if you perhaps (laughs) thought of Solomon today... Since you knew you would be sharing the story. Oh,
2: did you think about him yeah, at all? I, I think I think about him pretty often <laughs> I don't I can't remember yeah. a, a precise moment, mm-hmm. but I think about him sometimes. I'm more likely to think about what I'm currently working on, but I didn't read today, so um, there wasn't anybody's a, a story that was in there today, you know.
1: I understand. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little it's June, which is I, well, every month is my favorite month. But it's a wonderful month. There's Mm -hmm. so much daylight. There's so much opportunity to be outside. I was just wondering if you would tell us about your life in June.
2: Yeah, my grandmother used to quote this. I forget which poet this is. If it's Wordsworth or like Rossetti or something. What is so rare as a day in June? Then, if ever, are perfect days. You know that poem? I don't. So anyway, well, that's how it goes. That's as much as I know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think of it every June because it is... They, there are these perfect days that you don't seem to get in any other month, and I do love the month, and I do love um, warm days and especially windy ones, and that's what this
1: was. Yeah. And you like the wind and because it?
2: I don't know. You know, it's animating. It's like an animating force. You know, like, or so you look at the trees and they're, they're you know, there's something going on there. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Uh In in winter, when they don't have their leaves and they're standing, you know, especially on a still day in winter, there's a different kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's like a rigor mortis if you've seen that in animals or cows or something where they seem, you know, like there's a dramatic gesture, but it's frozen. (laughs) That's the winter tree, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the summer tree on these windy days is such a dancer, Mm -hmm. you know. Yes, I do. Yeah.
1: Uh, last week, we talked about uh, the sounds that surround your house and the sounds that come from inside your house because of music and your children. I forgot to ask you last week if you wouldn't mind sharing the sounds that you experienced when you lived in Rogers Park, when you are on the north side of Chicago. Oh,
2: yeah. It's so long ago. You know, I don't even really remember that uh, so much, you know? Um I I would guess that they were just the city sounds, you know, like a lot more, tra- well, we're very near Sheridan Road, so there must have been traffic and, um, but not also not far from the lake. So you got a little bit of that if you were walking, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just more, you know, just more of people talking and out and when, you know, the streets were. And I was also living, you know, I was living in that area w- uh, during the, the Chicago Bulls, you know, um, rain. <laughs> and so what one thing I do remember is coming, having watched the uh, one of those championship games and coming out into the streets and people hanging out the windows and yelling and, screaming and you know how the whole city was involved and I'm not a sports fan but you know I somebody said to me when I moved to the city y- you might not be a sports fan now but you can't live in Chicago and not be a sports fan and of course I just hit the right era there mm-hmm. and so I did become for a short time I jumped <laughs> on the bandwagon. <laughs> and,
1: Is there yeah. anything that you uh, can tell us about Chicago from your perspective now? Do you like to go back? Do you care if you never go back do you ever you know what is your relationship with this amazing city that's so close to us
2: i do love it but i feel like it's farther away than it really is i don't know i mean it now it just is a great effort to try to like drive there and go there and i'm not that great of a driver you know like i never (laughs) learned how to drive in traffic i um you know because i grew up in oregon they told us in drivers that if you like um, just skip the parallel parking chapter. Oh, really? <laughs> go around the block and find another spot, mm. like as if we would never go anywhere where we needed to parallel park. So I'm not good <laughs> in traffic. I don't think fast. If I'm talking to someone who's passenging with me, mm-hmm. I'll slow down. <laughs> you know, like I'm very <laughs> irritating as a driver. You would not like to be a passenger in the car I was driving. That's a, very you know. funny. So anyway, um, I don't know. Um, I miss the city. And I like to vacation in cities and be in cities in small doses. But I guess I'm, you know, I grew up here. So mm-hmm. this is what I'm used to. And it's comfortable for me. And I can work here. So that's all I want is like a place that I could work, you know. Yes. And I have a really good friend. Joe is my really good writer friend. And he lives in New York City. And sometimes I go and visit him. And um, he... It does get a lot of writing done but I think also like just being in the city takes a lot of energy on a daily basis I think he would tell you that mm-hmm. you know may ask does Joe have a last name Joe O'Malley is his name he's a writer
1: hi Joe O'Malley yeah. Yeah. Can you come on the pack He's the podcast? a great guy. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> come to Rockford, please, yeah. Mr. <laughs> O'Malley. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> um, before we wrap this up, I'm going to ask you the question that nobody ever likes me to ask, and that is, is there anything you would like to say? Is there anything you'd like to talk about? Yes.
2: Oh, yay! There is something. If you ride a bicycle, wear a helmet, because I fell off a bicycle. <laughs> a couple of summers ago, and I hit my noggin, and I opened it, it like a big gash on my head, and I, um, I did pass out. I woke up in the ditch. I was bleeding all over, and so I was one of these fun-loving gals who would not wear a bike helmet because I, it was impeding my joy. I, didn't want, I wanted my hair to be flowing out behind me like a ribbon, and um, so I don't think that that's a good idea. <laughs> I want all your listeners to put their helmets on when they go out on their bicycles.
1: (laughs) Even even me, because I don't wear a helmet. Yes, no, put a helmet on. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. All right, Molly McNutt, it's been a pleasure. Will you come back next week and read the story we were talking about? Sure, I'd
2: love to. Bye. Bye.
0: The Black Knights of the Moon previously appeared with the title River in Image Journal. The Gildy Pleasures podcast is made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, Rockford Area Arts Council, the Shumway, and you, our listeners. Subscribe to Gildy Pleasures on iTunes or Google Play or download podcasts from our website, rockfordwritersguild.org. Email feedback to editor at rockfordwritersguild.org. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Rockford Writers Guild and Instagram and Twitter at Gildy Pleasures. Thank you for listening. This is your producer, Jesse Coons. Now go right.